Good evening. Hello. Uh, my name is Alexa Greist, and I'm the assistant curator of prints and drawings here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. We welcome you here, acknowledging that we are gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat throughout time. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to thank our generous supporters this evening, the Master Print and Drawing Society of Ontario. This group of collectors, scholars, and others passionate about prints and drawings have been involved with the Art Gallery of Ontario for more than 35 years. Their support greatly enriches our programming, collecting, and scholarship. Now to our speaker. An expert on Francisco Goya, Janice Tomlinson is the author of several seminal books and articles on the artist, including Goya in the Twilight of the Enlightenment and Francisco Goya y Lucientes, and she's currently writing a biography of the artist. She was the US curator for the exhibition Goya, Images of Women, which took place at the Museo del Prado in 2001, and the National Gallery of Art in Washington in 2002. And more recently, she was the consultant and author of the exhibition catalog, Goya, Order and Disorder, Boston Museum of Fine Arts, 2014 to 15. Dr. Tomlinson received her BA from McGill University and her MA and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania before teaching at Columbia University. She was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and was also a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. From 1999 to 2003, Dr. Tomlinson was Director of Exhibitions and Cultural Programs at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, DC, before assuming her current position as Director of Special Collections and Museums in the Morris Library at the University of Delaware. Tonight, she'll be speaking about Goya's monsters and there will be time for questions at the end. Thank you. Good evening. Alexis, thank you for the introduction. And I'd like to thank everybody at the Art Gallery of Ontario who made my visit possible. I truly enjoyed seeing the exhibition Guillermo del Toro at Home with Monsters. Um, this, it's just a fantastic exhibition. Um, I changed the title of my lecture. And I changed the title of my lecture for, well, two reasons. First of all, I received, I, I received a copy of the catalog in early mid-October. And I realized that the lecture I had planned that was an overview of Goya's four series of etchings really didn't fit that very well. Um, and then I was just, I don't know why, but I was on, I, I searched myself on YouTube and I found that a lecture somewhat similar to the one I was going to give here that I gave at Yale University Art Gallery a couple of years ago was on YouTube. So, if anyone wants an overview of Goya prints, look for Tomlinson on YouTube, and you can have more of me after tonight's lecture. Um, so I decided to talk about, think, think about Goya's monsters. And this might be a little bit looser than, than what I would originally plan, but sometimes it's better like that. So first of all, a brief introduction to Francisco Goya. The name, of course, is familiar to all of us and, and it's well recognized, but perhaps he is not as well known as his name. A lot of people think of him 
as a 19th century artist. In fact, he was born in 1746, and I like to tell my American audiences that he was an almost exact contemporary of Thomas Jefferson. He uh, born the same year, uh, Goya outlived Jefferson by two years. Um, so he lived through a period of revolution and change, and I think this also, we will see how clearly this impacted his, his, uh, the etchings that we'll look at tonight. His life was also just lived through a period of change in society. He was not—he was born in a small village near Saragossa, but really spent his youth in the town of Saragossa, Spain, which is the capital of Aragon. If you're taking a train from Madrid to Barcelona, it's about midway on that diagonal. And I represent it here by the church of El Pilar. Um, which stands over the banks of the Ebro River. El Pilar is named because it's for, for St. Mary of the Pillar. Mary appeared to the Apostle St. James, uh, who was spreading the word in, in Spain. And uh, he, she appeared and gave St. James not only a statue, but a column on which to place it. And this shrine uh, is said to hold that column, and it is that column which is still worshipped in this, uh, this uh, pilgrimage church today. But Goya's life, um, and what I show on the, on, the right of each, on the right of each slide, is a painting that, uh, that Goya, a fresco that Goya created at 25 years of age in Saragossa, in El Pilar. It is over a vault over the east end at the small choir vault, and it shows the worship of the holy name. And as you can see, it's a very sort of classically oriented uh, figures of angels, uh, sort of standing supported by rather lithic clouds. Um, and it, it, it marks a very different sort of point of departure than we tend to expect for Goya painting in fresco, a religious painting in a shrine in Saragossa. But the amazing thing about Goya, and the one reason I, you know, still after 30 years, I, I am still amazed by him, is that he was a real problem solver. And when he got a new commission, he figured out how to answer the, the call. And he got a, a very important call in 1775 to go to the court of Madrid, um, which was then under the Bourbon king, Carlos III, Charles III, and he probably got the invitation because he had very wisely married the sister of an artist from Saragossa, Francisco Vallejo, who had made it as a court painter, as a very well-respected court painter. And probably through that connection, Goya received an invitation to go to Madrid, where his main task would be to paint tapestry cartoons or designs for tapestries that would be woven in the royal tapestry factory to decorate uh, rooms in the palaces not in Madrid, but in the sort of country palaces that the, uh, uh, that the monarchy enjoyed. And I show you one of those in this, in this. It's called the Crockery Vendor. It's a scene taken from a series representing the Fair of Madrid, an event that took place annually. And you see in the lower, uh, sorry, left or right, in the lower corner, a Valencian seller selling crockery. Crockery pottery is still identified with Valencia. To a young woman accompanied by an old lady, a carriage runs by. And you think that, you know, this was about the third year that Goya was painting these scenes of, con invented scenes, but scenes based on contemporary life in his Madrid. And you see how his style had changed completely from that Italianate fresco that we saw at the outset of the decade to these scenes of uh, everyday life. 
And that kind of ingenuity and ability to, to respond to his patron's demands really defined his early career at the court when he was asked to paint a portrait. He painted a portrait, not a great portrait, but soon he learned how to paint portraits, and soon the aristocracy was re-asking for portraits. He answered religious commissions. He continued to paint tapestry cartoons until in 1789 he was, he was given the position of court painter. Um, that was a change of, of monarch, under a new monarch we'll be talking, who will appear later in the talk. Um, in 1793, then four years after his appointment as court painter, he suffered an illness that left him deaf for the rest of his life. And, um, and this is kind of where our story will begin in the mid-1790s. But first, I'd like to just look at that deafness. It's often regarded as, as the critical turning point in his career. And I think we have to revise that. I mean, Goya has continued to be incredibly active after that painting, continuing with his professional life, uh, as, as portraitist, mainly increasingly as portraitist of, of the aristocracy and eventually the monarchs. But also, um, of the, but he sort of created a, a, a separate path and a, a separate parallel path to that sort of professional career of commissions in, in creating uncommissioned works. And he also began to draw. Why he began to draw, you know, one writer suggested it was because now that he lost his hearing, he always had a pad and pen close to hand. Perhaps, perhaps. And one of his earliest drawings is the uh, drawing on the left, simply showing a woman in a, a mantilla, the black veil, and an overskirt of, of dark um, uh, material that women would wear when they went out on the streets of Madrid. We don't have firm dates for these drawings, 1793, 94 perhaps, but eventually we see within a, a few years how his drawing style evolved. Both of these drawings are done in ink wash, that is ink that's highly diluted and applied with a brush, but we can see how they change. First of all, from a stream, a scene probably inspired by something it's seen on the street, to an invented scene of um, singers who sing around a figure seated at the piano. If you could see closely, you could see that he kind of grimaces and rolls up his eyes. And the explanation in that is given by the title. They sing for he who composed it. So it's interesting that Goya, now deaf, is, is envisioning sound through the open mouths of the singers, through the grimacing face of the composer at the piano, um, and uh, sort of communicates, you know, an e, uh, a flat note, even though he, he himself does not hear. And the other thing that we'll see that, and this is a point of departure for his, his series of prints, is his addition of titles, of a caption. What made him do this in his drawings? I mean, did deafness inspire that? Did he create these scenes, and since he couldn't, you know, easily communicate what they said, he's, he has this internal dialogue that he records in the caption to his drawings. So we'll leave Goya here in the mid-1790s, coming back shortly, but first let's look at, uh, say something, a word about monsters. Now, monsters, and what I have on the screen is, a, is a, the de definition of monsters as it appears in the first major dictionary point out, pointed, uh, uh, published 
by the Royal Academy of Languages in Spain that had been founded by the Bourbons when they took over the monarchy in Spain in around 1700. And there it defines a monster that might be a birth that is against the regular order of nature or contrary to the order, regular order of nature, the result of breeding animals of different species. Or, and then the third definition is a monster is nothing other than a sin of nature that by defect or excess lacks the perfection of the living that living beings must have. Now this is a sort of classical definition of monster, something that stands outside of nature. And if you've read the exhibition catalog, you see that, that they talk about how this definition was transformed. And that's where I think Goya's etchings really fit in. Um, first of all, they mention a shift in the 18th century, and they point out that the naturalist Carl Linnaeus, who was uh, creating a taxonomy for natural uh, for, uh, species, identified a species as the species of monsters. So monsters were no longer outside of nature. They were part of nature. And they also talk about us moving ahead from mid-18th century to the beginning of the 19th century, how the 19th century introduced a more sympathetic monster, made sympathetic by human traits. So, and most, most famously embodied by Frankenstein, uh, the book published by, by Mary Shelley in 1818. That date of 18 actually corresponds with the last of Goya's etchings that we'll see. But I'd so I'd like to look also at, here at how that transformation of what, of what a monster is occurs in Goya's prints. Um, Goya was interested in monsters early on. I show you a page from something discovered in the late um, in the late 1780s, which is an, a sketchbook. It's called his Italian sketchbook because it's it is it is one that he began when he was a student uh, in Italy, um, and then but he continued. There were blank pages, and he continued to use it after his return to to um, after his return to um, uh, to Spain. And this sketch is actually, you can see it's, it's sort of inked in. It, it was later probably than, it was probably after his return to Spain because it's over a red chalk sketch, which is a sketch for a painting that he did in 1771, shortly before his return to Spain, showing just his, his sort of interest in seeing these fantastic creatures. But, his vocabulary of monsters would greatly improve when he went to the court of Madrid and was introduced to the magnificent royal collection, which is the basis for the, the old master collection that is today in the Prado Museum. There, he would have discovered the works of Hieronymus Bosch, a 16th century painter, including this marvelous work, which is known as the Garden of Earthly Delights. Now, given the complexity of this work and numerous attempts by scholars to write about it, to understand it, to interpret it, um, I looked for how I could best present it briefly and found on the website of the Khan Academy this explanation. On the left-hand panel, God introduces Adam to Eve and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> In the central panel, naked people cavort and all hell breaks loose. On the right-hand panel, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and
And we recall that one definition of monsters classically was monsters are sins of nature. So it's not surprising that evil is represented and evil uh, and sin is represented by monsters in hell who do awful things to the people who end up in hell. And Goya, you know, was sometimes participated in this kind of monsters. In 1788, he was given a commission for an altarpiece uh, 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 in a chapel dedicated to St. Francis Borsha, who was, the patron was the Duchess of Osuna, the, the saint was one of her ancestors. And here he shows the saint's unsuccessful attempt to exorcise the demons from an impenitent dying man. And you can see that behind the agonized dying man, the monsters are just waiting to pounce and claim his soul. And for an 18th century person of faith, these are figural surrogates for evil. But in that following decade of the 1790s, those critical years following Goya's illness, Goya gave form to a new kind of monster, that created by, created by and existing only in man's, the imagination of man. People wonder where the caprichos came from, how did Goya dare publish them? So I just want to take another slight detour into a little history. In 1789, as I mentioned, uh, Carlos IV came to the throne, and four months after he came to the throne, he appointed, gave Goya the long-awaited appointment, appointment as court painter. Um, he's often treated by historians as an adult, and his wife as a, as a, a, a very bad woman who was having an affair with a minister at court, and all of that is probably not true. In fact, he, he was, he came to a throne, then he was faced by a growing financial crisis that he inherited from his father. And of course, 1789, and he also came to the throne at a disastrous time. It coincided with the fall of the Bastille, the beginning of the French Revolution. And that clearly influenced Spain because the king of, the Bourbon king of France was the cousin to the king of Spain. And so Spain immediately sided against the French, Revolution, uh, the French revolutionaries and in 1793 had fought a war against them in the Pyrenees. And eventually, however, their alliance shifted into ally, uh, from an alliance with England against France to an alliance with France against England. And this alliance would further weaken the Spanish state in contributing to its worsening finances. So, Carlos IV was all, he, there was great turnover in, in his ministers, but he was always looking for someone who could react responsibly to the latest intrusion from France into Spanish politics. And around 1797, he, he brought to his court as in, in various ministerial positions, a group of enlightened reformers. That is, people who sought social reform, who sought how to better the economy by putting all the sectors to work and to production. And it was this kind of enlightened sort of period that might explain how Goya thought that publishing the, the series of etchings that would become known as the Caprichos um, was a feasible undertaking and that they would find a public, they would find an audience. Um, they were published in early 1799. And they were soon became known as the caprichos, caprices, whimsies, fantasies. 
And in looking at the series, it's, it's interesting to see not how, only how Goya's monsters took form and evolved, but also something that has long interested me in the series is how they evolved in tandem alongside of the evolution of Goya's handling of the etching and aquatint technique. I don't want to go into an explanation of the technique, but why I'm mainly going to be talking about tone in the plates, and that's created through a process called aquatint that if there are questions we can try and discuss later. I don't think it's necessary to get the point of what I'm making. And my idea of how Goya's um, style evolves parallels something that I began, I've, I've been thinking about for decades, which is you know, when we st look at Goya's etchings, we t they come in series, they're organized, they're numbered some often. We look at them that way. And then I, I think, well, yeah, but if you look at the images within that sequence, they weren't created in those numbers. Goya created the place, and then he put them together. And so I try to go back and look at how his, he began and learned a lot about the etching process. And this is true, in, and he, he goes through an evolution in all of his series of etchings. So I'm also touching on that point because it's a favorite point of mine. The drawing that's now on the screen is a point of departure for, for the Caprichos. Above, you see it barely, you, and the title is, is, is hard to read, so you'll have to take my word for it. It is titled Sueño One, Dream Number One. On the desk over which the sleeping art author dozes, it's inscribed, is inscribed Universal Language, drawn and engraved by Francisco de Goya in 1797. And the caption beneath reads, the author dreaming. His sole intent is to undermine prejudicial vulgarities and perpetuate with this work of Capriccio's the solid testimony of the truth. Thus, the author dozes, reason is no longer in control, and monsters emerge. In the final etching after the drawing, and by the way, I will want to point out this, that this drawing, some of you might see, I don't see it that well from here. Oops, I'm sorry. I meant to point out. There is a kind of mark, you see a little blackening there, and there is an embossment around the drawing, because this was the drawing that was actually put face down and run through the press uh, with the etching plate, so it was transferred to it, and that is the plate mark from that. So we know this, dressing, uh, this drawing was used to guide his etching of the plate. Um, and in the final etching, we see that the, the inscription on the desk has changed to the famous, the dream of reason produces monsters. Not only allows them to appear, it produces them. And in this way, monsters become the antithesis of reason, the antithesis of enlightenment, created when dream doses, when, 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 uh, when dream liberates, rather, the mind from the constraints of reason. So how do we give form to those monsters? Among the early etchings created in the series was uh, one that we'll see so after this drawing. Again, it is one of the Sueño series, Dream series. And the title beneath reads, A Master Witch Giving Lessons to Her Student on the First Flight. Goya then made real the witches which, in which 
the unenlightened believed. His humor, though, is also ironic because one of the ideals of enlightened informers was education. And here we have what might be construed as miseducation, as a, we, as a witch, a master witch, sort of carries on the tradition and educates the young witch in the skill of flying. As in many etchings for this series, from drawing to etching, the uh, changes were made, and the explanation of the, of the original caption for the drawing is condensed and sometimes changed, sometimes lost. So here it's simplified to ayaba va eso, there it goes. And let's just look for a minute at Goya's technique in the etching. I'll just point over here. Um, there is, okay, first of all, oops, it's a very linear, you can see many of the lines that he has in the drawing are literally etched into the plate and they sort of create a difference between a dark side and maybe some kind of lightness. The figures are very linear, it's it described with an etched line. Um, and although there is tone, you can see some a little darker over here, but it's generally a fairly even light tone. So light that when he leaves, the, the belly of the witch in front is actually not toned, it's paper. You barely see the difference between the etched tone, which is created by aquatint, and the tone on the belly. We're going to see how that changes. And I think it's because as Goya progressed on this, he really taught himself how to use aquatint. And also, as we move ahead, he, his drawings change. He abandons the pen and ink, which is a very tight technique. You, ha you have to be fairly linear when you're working in pen and ink. Um, then to a red chalk drawing. You know, if you're drawing in chalk, your forms will be more generalized, slightly less linear. The expressions of your figures will not be that, well, can only be generally defined. And red chalk is actually something that transfers better. The press is more easily transferable to an etching plate than ink was, which might explain why he changed to chalk. So um, what happens now then is that, that a lot of, if you look at the definition, for example, of the expressions of the children in the print, and compare them to those in the drawing, you see that he's leaving a lot of the work, fine work to indirectly, when he's directly working on the plate. The theme here is again education, or better yet, misguided education. From the woman's expression, she seems to sort of welcome the phantom, the disguised man who appears, and yet he, he, he inspires her children with terror. She doesn't correct that misbelief. She has them believe in phantoms. We'll see where that leads. So this is a, a, you know, an unenlightened ideal, a prejudicial vulgarity of a mother who does not do her job of educating her children. But also, again, looking at the, the use of aquatint. It's now a much, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, wrong button. It's a much darker use, so he can create contrast of light and dark. He cre can create the idea of a dark night. And he creates this highlight here, which if you imagine the viewpoint of the children, the face is totally cast in shadow, which would be truly spooky. Um, and, and creates light that suggests perhaps moonlight coming down on the scene, illuminating the, the terrified expressions of the children. 
And what happens to those children when they grow up? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to skip that. What happens to those children when they grow up is that they continue to be scared of, of phantoms, of cloth draped on trees. They continue to worship it. They continue to be scared of its power over them. And I'm just going, I, I had that slide in here to again stress this difference in how that tonal feature is used and how, is, how, Goya, how Goya is experimenting with it, beginning to master it. So we've gone from linear pen and ink drawings to drawings in red chalk. But within those red chalk drawings, we also see Goya's increased focus on fewer figures, larger in scale on the plate, now very generally defined. It's only in etching that Goya, working directly on the plate, defines expressions. And through aquatint uh, and a technique called burnishing, which kind of erases and, and creates gradations in the aquatint, it creates volumes. And also at this point, I believe we see Goya merging the two worlds of natural and supernatural, giving form to a hybrid of imagined monsters with curiously human traits. In Little Spirits, Duendecitos, his spirits actually wear the robes of Carthusian, Franciscan, and Dominican monks. Um, the criticism of monastic life is implicit and, and parallels the ideal idea of reformers of the period who actually criticized the monastic orders because of the massive amounts of, of wealth and lands that they held with no benefit to the economy of Spain. And also because of the failure of monastic communities to make a meaningful, meaningful contribution to the betterment of society. And actually, you know, I, I mean, the large hand of that duende, that little garble and little spirit, calls your attention. And it just struck me, and I, I have got this, someone must have written this earlier, but um, that, that idea of holding Mortmain, uh, Mortmain uh, comes from dead hand in, in, in uh, French. And in Spain, although I haven't seen, the, I don't know if the, the term was used in Goya's pairs, is manos muertos, so they're held in dead hands. So I'm not sure if that large hand of the spirit has some direct relation with that holding of property in dead hands. But other times, he creates a more comic monster, as in this one of my favorite etchings, where his monsters have incredibly human traits, such as the vanity of the right-hand figure in They Spruce Themselves Up, who just takes absolute pleasure in a pedicure, and maybe even a foot massage. Ultimately, his goblins emerge from a dark night of aquatint, illuminated by the light of an unseen moon. And again, we see how they take form as Goya etches on the plate. And here, you compare the drawing. The face of the flying goblin in the foreground is, is, is left totally to be defined on the plate. And the faces of those huddled behind 
find, which would become an, an, an interest, and actually in the Boston exhibition, the curator gave it the idea of swarms, these heads that sort of appear only as heads grouped together, and here's the first appearance of one of those, and then how they appear in the drawing, but then how are they deformed and get, are formed and given volume and given shape in the final etching as he's working directly on the plate. And again, just to remind you, this great transition, I mentioned that Goya was an incredible problem solver. He would create a task and he'd go and go and go. We don't know how long it took him to create the, the Caprichos. The first drawing that we saw, the Sueño, was dated 1797, so at least 1797 through 1798, maybe two years. Um, Maybe, he, maybe he'd be on the 17th, maybe three years. But he published them, they were announced for sale and he sold print, the, some of them in January 1799, so they didn't go into that year. So, and that's creating 80 Aquitan etchings and those etchers are and creating uh, probably an addition of maybe 300, we don't know, Gloria said 300, we don't know. Um, and this is at the same time where he's painting full-length portraits, and he's also frescoing the interior of a dome of the church San Antonio de la Florida in Madrid, set both in, in 1798. Um, he is, I continue to argue, an incredibly fascinating artist. Now, a lot of, there's often talk about the Goya, you know, the caprichos were taken from him because of the Inquisition. No, 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 no. In 1803, he surrendered, he, he handed over the plates to the calcography, which is uh, part of the, the royal printing establishment. And they still have the plates today. If you visit Madrid, go to the Royal Academy uh, Museum. Before you go up, you can go on the first floor. And the printing establishment has a wonderful exhibition of Goya's plates. So you have from all the series, they eventually got all of them. And he gave them, but he gave them willingly because he, he, he bargained for it. In exchange, he, his son would get a, an annual pension from the government, which his son continued to collect. And besides, they were announced for sale in, 17, in 17, February 1799, and eight months later, Goya got the highest possible position at court given to him by Charles IV, and that was as first court painter. And it was in that posi in position that he painted the well-known portrait of the family of Charles IV in 1800. Meanwhile, Spain's alliance with France, now ruled by Napoleon, continued to drain Spain's fine resources. And when Napoleon took control of Spain's navy, it led to its ultimate defeat at Trafalgar. The alliance with France was also opposed by many within the government and increasingly opposed by the crown prince, the uh, young man who appears in blue at the far left of the royal family portrait, causing a friction and great divide between the prince and his, his, um, his parents. Nevertheless, the prince and the parents were both trying to, to get Napoleon's favor because they saw that as the main way to rule their country. But in 1808, Napoleon decided that he just couldn't deal with the turmoil of the Spanish monarchy. And what the engraving that I show is contemporary engraving that reinvents the scene of Carlos IV, Maria Luisa, and their son, Ferdinand, uh, invited to, by Napoleon to the southern uh, French city of Bayonne, uh, and there abdicating in his favor. Uh, and Goya, and uh, Napoleon would p place his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the Spanish throne. And this led to a five-year war, uh, Spain of un really unprecedented cruelty, and, 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 and which devastated the country. Spain. Nothing like that had ever hit Spain before. 
Uh, and it was an incredibly cruel war. It, it, outside of any rules of war, rules of engagement, the Napoleonic forces were underfed, underpaid, tired of fighting, and they were also terrified because their enemy wasn't just a regular Spanish army, but also the peasants who throughout Spain in villages hated the French, and they hated the French because they saw the French as against their religion, as not, and they saw Napoleon as the Antichrist, and literature of the time presents him as such. So, you know, woe, woe for the, the French soldier who is caught, and equally the, the French also uh, reciprocated with equal uh, cruelty uh, of uh, Spanish peasant fighters or, or any fighters that they captured. So Goya created a series of prints that became known as the Disasters of the War. Um, the, they were untitled. They, the titles that we know by were not given until probably about 1819, long after Goya had, had finished with the series. And they weren't published until 35 years after Goya's death. There is, in many of these scenes, a pseudo-documentary uh, sort of feel. However, Goya did not witness these scenes. Goya spent uh, the war scenes, the battlefield scenes. But he spent most of the, the uh, war in Madrid, in uh, where and where the press was also controlled by the French rulers. So, what he could hear of what was going on outside, we don't really know. What he could know of it, whether he imagined it all, we do not know. The earliest, um, his earliest etchings have. As seen here on the upper left, you'll see about, on the left margin, about a third of the way up, you'll see uh, Goya's etched in signature and also the date, 1810. There are three etchings of the series that have Goya, 1810. And this is usually taken to be his, point, his starting point for this series. Uh, and he probably continued on the series uh, through 1812 and then also then added a series of coda images that we'll be talking about. Um, and finally, the series themselves suggest the hardship of war. Uh, the copper that Goya needed for the copper plates upon which he etched was, it was increasingly hard to come by. And so when you look at the plates, you see that they change in, in dimensions. The etching in the upper left measures six and a half by 10 inches, which is a fairly nice size for a plate whereas that on the lower right is the smallest plate and measures uh, five and a half by seven and a half, uh, no, five, five and a half by seven three quarters inches. So he's, it's a reduction of about a quarter of the field. And that is because the image on the lower right is made on copper, on a copper plate of an earlier etching that had been cut in half and then he used the, the Versa to create an etching. So he was really strained to get materials. And he sometimes had to work with um, defective materials, as in this image um, where you see pock marks and little marks on the plate that were largely covered over by tone when it was produced, uh, when it was published posthumously. But here you see that he, he was working with a sort of inferior materials. And this, this comes from, you know, the really, uh, perhaps the worst for Madrid, the absolute worst part of the war, from fall of 1811 to 1812, a famine hit, hit um, Madrid. And by, during those years, probably killed, it's estimated killed about 20,000 people. 
And so Goyle inevitably faced the scenes of the starving and the dying when he went out on the streets of Madrid. Not that these are necessarily, you know, all, you know, scenes captured in nature, because here it's clearly a constructed scene where he shows the have and have-nots, where he has the young woman well-dressed who is sort of averting her, her gaze from this, the, the hungry in front of her and instead is going, circumventing them to meet the French soldier behind. Um, the war itself was a nightmare of reason. Uh, it was beyond, you know, the sleep of reason. And it turned any kind of social order on its head. As for here, as we see soldiers assaulting young women, forcing virgins, um, and forcing grandmothers to take up arms and become possible, we hope, killers. And Goya is also perhaps contemplative about what's happening. And here in the setting, he, he introduces an intermediary, um, inviting us to guess the thoughts of the French soldier who contemplates a victim. And we really can't hate the French soldier. Right? In this, it's kind of a moment of tranquility of silence, of, of contemplation in the middle of this ruthless war. And we really don't know what he's thinking, you know. Is it he deserved it, or is he think, you know, is this really worth it? But where the monsters appear, if we have mon mon monstrous deeds in the war, where the monsters appear are in, in a series of plates that were published as part of the disasters of war. But when the series was given an early title about three years after its creation by a colleague of Goya's, a collector and art historian, San Bermudez, he, he described these plates as the caprichos emphaticos, that is referring back to Goya's early caprichos, but calling them the emphatic caprices. And we identify these plates, we can identify them because they are printed, Goya got a hold of quality material, unmarked plates, all uniform in size, six and three quarters by eight and three quarters uh, inches. And on them, he created a series of etchings um, that really refer to the suffering and political turmoil in Spain that was the aftermath of the expulsion of the Napoleonic forces. The Napoleonic forces were expelled from Spain in June 1813. The king who would return, who would be the son, Ferdinand, Ferdinand had come back as Ferdinand VII, had spent a very comfortable um, exile at the estate of the Marquise de Talleyrand, uh, in, in, uh, who actually complained about the, the cost of having to host the king and his courtiers. Um, but anyway, and he was, you know, probably there he learned to enjoy a neoclassical style of art, which he also patronized when he came back to the throne. But he wouldn't return to France until a year, almost a year later, 1813, June, French were expelled. He doesn't come back until, until um, well, he doesn't come, he entered the country again until the following March. And during that, that time, it's an amazing freedom of the press. I like to read newspapers from the period. They're now, they, the National Library has digitized all the newspapers, it's great. And you can see that there's really open debate about what form their new government would take. 
There were the government in exile pushed to the south of Spain that in 1812 had written a constitution. And there were those who said, okay, our king will follow this constitution. And there were others who were absolutely against the constitution. It was too progressive. It limited the powers of the church and didn't want anything like that to happen. And so in an entry like this, and I don't, I, I don't have an order for these. Um, I could suggest one, but I... You know, it's, it's, yeah, I think they, these plates were, were developed very within that year. Um, but that is my suggestion. Others create a longer period of development. And in something like these, I think we sense that the title of this plate would, the, the plate would ultimately be, you know, uh, what upset is this? What turmoil is this? It's sort of winds are blowing. You see women, a young woman, an old woman coming who perhaps asked for some help from the officials seated in writing, and they are turned away. And, and behind, you might see the outlines of figures in, that, in those lines behind that suggest cloak figures who are now retreating from the seated official at the desk. Um, And it's, it's that seated figure of corrupt authority that um, we see developed in these prints in such images as this, which gives us another hint to Goya's inspiration. Evil assumes a new form, and here it's inspired by fables in which animals assume human roles. Goya asks who is to blame and conveys an answer in the words that are written by the wolf uh, on the paper in his hand, which can be read. Misera humanidad, la culpa es tuya, casti. Wretched humanity, the blame is yours, casti. The reference is to an Italian author, Giambattista Casti, whose fable of the talking animals, gli animali parlante, uh, was once banned by the Inquisition but was published in Spanish translation during that transitional period of 1813. And it told the story very relevant at the time because it was, it was the group of animals who were discussing what form their government would take. And there were good animals, the white horse that appears elsewhere, elsewhere in these things, and there were bad animals, the dogs and the foxes and the wolves. And here it is the wolf that is in power. Um, but again, just as in the earlier etchings of the Caricha, supernatural creatures were empowered by the undereducated who, who believed in them. Now we begin to see those who honor the wolf are complicit in their own, what would become their own suppression. And this would be sort of anticipate what would happen when the king returned. And we see other forces, again, seated authority, worship. The cat worshiped by the owl, although we hear associated with knowledge. An owl was identified with night and, and ignorance. Or the ultimate evil seated figure uh, who inscribes words that we cannot read, who is grown claws and bat wings and takes the field and be, is transformed from human into ghoul as those at the foot of the hill below await the word that he writes. So Goya is a witness of a fall of the old order, of the atrocity and inhumanity of war, of the transitional year leading up to the restoration of a, con of a conservative monarch, 
took open revenge on, 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 the political, on the politics of the time. And you can see how he could only etch monsters. And you can see how these monsters are no longer the comic monsters that appeared in Capriccio's, but they are the embodiment of all that is evil. And the inspired the title that was ultimately assigned to this against the public good. By 1815, Goya, the 69-year-old artist, painted this self-portrait. His world had undergone cataclysmic change. His native Saragossa, to which he remained attached, indeed he signs this portrait Goya Aragonés, Goya from Aragon, um, had been decimated by Napoleonic forces at the outset of the war. First siege in 1808, second siege and surrender in February 1809. Ruined the, the old town. Um, and he, he the, the monarchy he'd served for 33 years met its end in 1808. And the, and the Spanish king returned to power in 1814, imposing an ultra-conservative agenda, supporting the church, and absolutely persecuting anyone who supported the Constitution of 1812. So how does one come to terms with the collapse of the ideals of enlightenment? Goy's answer was to create a world of unreason in a series of etchings, the, like the disasters of war published only after his death. This uh, is again, a dis, uh, dis, they call it, we call them the disparates. Um, which is defined here as a fact or something done or something said that is beyond reason. From dispar, we could think of disparity. It is, it is without parity or conformity with any kind of reason. And this shows you why some of you might be familiar with the title Proverbios, which was assigned to this series when it was published by the Royal Academy in 1864 after Goya's death. And at that time, they assigned each of these a Spanish proverb. And it was published that way in the Thomas Harris catalog. But what happened is we began to surface working proofs, impressions that Goya himself had pulled or overseen in which inscribed in Goya's handwriting calls them disparates. For example, here we have a cruel disparate. So why is it against reason? I think it's because the narratives don't add up. Goya, you know, the idea of painting narrative was always to vie with literature and how you could bring human feats to life, how you could create them. Here they are beyond reason. If you look at the figure who is lancing the figure crying behind him, first of all, the lance does not penetrate, so we, there, is, there is no actual pain. But nevertheless, one would ex expect some reaction from the onlookers, and that doesn't happen here. They go about their business, they sort of look blasé, they turn around. What is going on here? Similarly, in this, which the, uh, there is a title, Disparate Pobre, Poor Disparate, a woman flees from, a, from something. Actually, the preliminary drawing has a figure of a, wind of a winged creature that pursues her. But in the etching, Goya chooses to leave that out. So the reason for her flight is, is, is unexplained. And so she runs towards, again, these, these creepy-looking onlookers, these old women, possibly in the church, we don't know, and others are fleeing behind for a reason we cannot tell. And then perhaps in trying to figure out, we don't even ask you know, how it is she has sprouted a second head. 
the giant figure that you know might have been a remembrance from Goya when he was a child and saw Presence in, in Saragossa that always had gigantones, huge giants. Maybe that's where this figure comes from. That is threatening or comic, we really don't know. The man behind seems to want to protect himself by a figure in, in a, you know, with a long veil and robes, possibly a figure of the, of the Virgin Mary, the kind that was carried in processions to thwart off the, the giant. And as far as the ghouls behind the old giant, we really don't know. But in this picture, the folly of fear is a little better explained because a group of soldiers before a phantom, some react in fear. But there is one man who points up his head. Uh, I can't, oops, oh, there I go again, sorry. Points up his head and he's around here and looks and laughs. And maybe that's because he sees this little face peeking out from the sleeve of the phantom and he realizes that it is, again, that phantom who is only a man or some creation of man meant to um, create fear. And he himself, by recognizing, points out the disparate, the folly of that fear. Goya lets all things go, not only a woman carried by a horse, or some, interpreted by some as you know, a passion, you know, let free, loose possibly. But what's more interesting here is if we follow the tail of that horse, that as we were looking at doesn't really have a beginning, just an end, we see how it coincides with this ghoulish landscape that really where mountains turn into these canine-like creatures with big, big eyes, and where a robed monk, that phantom that we've seen so often in Goya's work, sort of goes, uh, flees into the maws of this mountain dog, we really don't know. But folly, and I'm about to finish up, but folly or unreason doesn't demand the presence of monsters anymore. It is most commonly embodied by men, as in this image. We don't have a contemporary title for it, so we call it Men in Sacks. Where, where we have a single figure standing in the foreground, in, in the left-hand foreground, who stands proudly, but he's scrutinized by all the figures around him. One sort of moves away from him and the other sort of sniff and explore this figure. It's suggesting that even when any attributes of station or wealth are disguised, people will sniff out, they will invent differences. Or here, again, no contemporary title. Uh, it's called, the, 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 given the title of loyalty. Where our sympathies are with the unfortunate, miserable, and tormented creature at the center, who in the classical world, in the 18th century, would have been the monster. But here, his sole ally is the dog that barks at his feet. The men surrounding him point and jeer, and prepare some kind of torture with an enema. What might he have done other than be different to deserve this? Leading us to guess who is the monster? And again, it is here, the men are the monsters. And it is a, for a format, a composition that Goya had used before in a taunting of an in individual in an altar maze that he had created in 1799 for the sacristy of the Toledo Cathedral. So in the end, Goya suggests that we are the monsters, the monsters are within us. And for this reason, Goya's monsters are still with us. 
We find images from the disasters of war in the op-ed pages. We sense the presence of the disparates and the exclusion in the works in everyday life, but also in the works of the late uh, Spanish sculptor Juan Munoz. And the dream of reason persists and continues to inspire, as in a series of five photographs in which the British-Nigerian artist Yinka Shonibari asked if the dream of reason still produces monsters across the six continents. Thank you for your attention. And I'll be more than happy to take questions about what I said or what I didn't say. It's possible to turn up the lights. We'll come back to you next. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thanks. Um, my question is, uh, do you think that there's any connection between English political cartoons of the time and Goya's work? Um, Yes and no. Um, first of all, I think they're intrinsically different because I think for Goya, image preceded word and words were assigned. I think he created monsters and then he gave them titles. And I think that's opposite someone like Gilray, who is a very, you know, he's illustrating, I think he illustrates words myself. Um, and maybe you disagree. Um, there are, however, I mean, there's another, if you go, if you actually, I bring Gilray into that lecture if you want to YouTube it, uh, because there, there is, Gilray was actually popular in the beginning of the, the Spanish War. Gilray was no, known as El Inventor Inglés del Torre Español, the English inventor of the Spanish bull, because he created a uh, satire of Napoleon, and this was after Napoleon's first, Napoleon's first attempt to, to take over Spain, uh, and the siege of Saragossa was rejected, and Napoleon retreated at the, towards uh, the fall of 1808, and then he came back in force, and Napoleon himself came to Madrid. But during that time, Gilray's print and the titles were translated and sold in Madrid. And I think, I'm sure that Goya, I think Goya saw that, and I think the meaning of that Spanish bull that Gilray created actually enters into the, tar, the series of bullfight prints, the Tauromachia, which I didn't get to talk about. So I think, and I think he was, he was very aware of them. And I think perhaps in the characters of the 1790s, he may have been looking at them, especially when earlier 1790s, when, when there was an alliance between uh, Britain and um, Britain and Spain. Uh, and also Goya was very involved with the Duke and Duchess of Osuna who were Anglophiles and probably had those prints. I think he was looking at them at those early caricature drawings. So yes, to a certain extent. Other question? Uh, do you consider the Colossus to be one of the monsters? And would you comment on the intense disagreement about the attribution of the Colossus? OK, I am of the opinion that it is not uh, by Goya. I regret that I published it as such, as I was a young scholar, and I didn't dare question the Prado Museum. And because I really need them to like me so I get to do what I do. <laughs> Uh, and they do like me, and I do get, when I'm mean, going through boxes of Goya drawings, I mean, ah. Um, but, uh, okay, first of all, I mean, I, what had always thrown me was, was, the, uh, was the, the, the landscape at the bottom of the painting of those figures, and those figures make no sense, and Goya never painted a figure that doesn't make sense. 
and he learned to paint very small figures because he, he had etched these, the, the, those, those figures you see in the early disasters of war piled on the, the, the field of battle. And he brought that back into his painting. He does paintings, but his figures know what they're doing. It wasn't that mishmash, which is a 19th century follower's mark, in my opinion. And also, um, yeah, where does it fit? I, I just don't see it fitting. I see it, I mean, there were a lot of imitators, uh, you know, imitators or hope Goya would-be's who looked to his prints, the disasters of war with men flying, they added those to paintings. And of course he did a lot of wonderful mezzotint of the seated giant, which might have given form to um, the Colossus. Also, you know, there's an underdrawing on that uh, canvas. And Goya usually, Goya didn't do underdrawings. I mean, he, he, you know, started with a brush on the canvas and worked up from there. And, yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I mean, in the preparation to write a biography, I've done the year by year by year, reviewing all the documents, reviewing all that. And at the end of it, I've gotten a pretty good style, you know, of where Goya's style was. And when I look at that and I say, well, where would it fit? And I just don't see it fitting at all. So, thank you for that question. <laughs> yes? Um, sorry, let's wait for the mic. Yeah, we've got one over here. Sorry. Um, I have a quick question. I was just curious, considering uh, Goya's background, um, in Spain and the whole relationship between Augustine and post-Trent uh, Spanish Catholic Church. I was just wondering if there was any relationship between like Goya's interpretation of monsters fitting in with the cult of the monstrous as it relates to like Augustine's writing on the divinity of monstrosity. I have no idea. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with Augustine's writing and I don't, I, I have no idea. Um, so uh, I don't know that there's, I, I, I really can't comment. <laughs> Sorry. How do you explain the, the difference in Goya's visual imagination that you see in the prints and the much more conventional but still quite extraordinary portrait of the aristocracy and the monarchy? To me, they're not the same artist. But they are, and that's what makes Goya, makes Goya so, so incredibly fascinating. He, you know, even before his illness, he wrote in the letter about he was a man of genius, and he prided himself on this thing called invention, the capability, the creation, the invention, you know, his, his ability to invent. And I think he just, I mean, as I said, they're two parallel tracks. You know, he continued. I mean, you know, as I said, he was working on the caprichos as he was creating, if, you're, if you've been to Madrid and seen San Antonio de la Florida, let's see, it's 1798, that's the exact time that he was working on the caprichos. Um, so, and his, um, and the other, I mean, he was, a, he was, he was an incredibly ambitious man he was, all, he was a driven man, he was driven to create, but he was also driven to maintain his position in society. He was also driven to maintain security for his family, the pension for his son, for example. He, and he provided well in the, uh, leaving things to his son. 
And I think that's because recent research published by a scholar in Saragossa is, shows that his family, I mean, throughout his childhood, they were evicted, they moved every year. I mean, his family, his father was a gilder, but as neoclassicism entered in and marble pieces became, uh, and altarpieces became done in, in marble, you know, there was less and less call for the gilder's art. And you know, and when his father died in 1780, he was he was there was no money, and Goya became the caretaker for all his siblings and for his aged mother. So Goya was very well aware of what poverty looked like, and he never wanted to be there. So he and he would have never said, "Oh no, I just want to go and create prints." Uh, and he also knew that his prints. I mean, he, one reason he turned into the Caprichos, he said they had, they didn't sell well. Um, and, you know, I know Robert Hughes argues against me in, in his book that, oh, he wouldn't have worked on the disasters, worked on the, the disparates, unless he wanted to publish them. And I think that's too academic a mindset for Goya. I think he loved to work in etching, and I think he etched them, and he stored them, and he thought, well, maybe someday somebody will see these. But I don't think he ever had the intention, well, particularly the disasters, to publish them. And I think he was just so driven to create, that just painting portraits didn't, wasn't enough. And I also wanted to add that sometimes, I mean, you, you really, um, there are some great portraits in the States, but there are also a lot of Goya's lesser portraits in the States, or, or portraits that have been maybe too uh, over, uh, ambitiously cleaned and things like that. Um, and, and so, you know, if you want to know Goya's portraits, you do have to go into the, 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 the Prado, and you do have to look at that incredible portrait of the royal family which just, you know, scintillates on the canvas how he puts on the patch and how you can imagine it under the oil lamp or the candles and how it would pick up the light and how it would glisten. So did I answer your question? <laughs> I think he loved really what he did, sometimes more than others. He always loved his prints and he certainly loved drawing, creating about 900 drawings actually. Right over here. <laughs> Hi. Um, so just to piggyback off of that then, do you think in your research and from all of your learnings and whatnot, um, uh, that working for the court was kind of like making sure that he had that sustainability and never encountered that kind of poverty again versus now creating these etches whereas was his kind of like creative outlet where he was forced to kind of not forced, but like he, he was um, employed to create these um, portraits in a certain manner versus what he, I like, would it be a stretch to say that this is what he would have preferred to do like on the side as like a creative like outlet no. almost or? No, I think that's a real 20th century sort of look at, you know, the creative versus the commissioned. Uh, and Goy had worked hard to get that first court painter. I mean, that was a really good job. And he writes in his letters, you know, he goes and visits the king, I mean, before he goes deaf, he visits the king, and the king asks uh, Charles IV, not the, not the king who preceded him, and the king is play, plays the violin for him and asks about his son who had had smallpox. And he seems to really like Carl, Charles IV. And it comes across in the paintings, not so much in, with Maria Luisa, but, uh, but and, and when you see portraits of certain officials at court, um, and when you look at the portrait of the royal family, that was a labor of love. I mean, it, it really, really was. Perhaps after, you know, after the war when he paints the portraits of the returned king, Fernando VII, 
yeah, maybe those were I got to do this kind of portraits. Um, they really don't show, but but they, but still, he creates other great portraits of a minister of actually of Fernand VII who had, you know, signed his approval that he was free of any doubt and and, and allowed him to get get his salary and was removed from being suspect of having worked for the intruder, uh, Joseph Bonaparte, you know, he paints his, his best portrait in After the War of the minister of Ferdinand VII. And when you look at those great portraits, they really are, are truly astounding. And you really have to go to Spain and see them. <laughs> um, so no, I think he, I think he was a very, I, I think, he really loved what he did. There's some commissions he was less enthusiastic about, to be sure. But throughout, there's always something that you see that incredible spark. Um, and, you know, I mean, I go back now and I, I, I used to teach, I mean, when I was teaching, I was teaching 19th century survey, and of course I was mainly teaching French artists. And I go back and look at those portraits, and to me, they just seem to, la there's a saint, they, I mean, and I don't mean to insult anyone who loves stuff, you never, they're great painters, but, they just don't have the kind of ingenuity, the kind of freshness that Goy is still maintaining. And so, <laughs> the answer, short answer is I think he found himself to be in a very lucky position. Uh, and I think he loved to paint, to fresco, to create in all sorts of media. Hi. I just have a question. Yeah. Um, over here, over on the left. Okay. My yeah. right. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Okay, okay. That, You're that. right. You're right. My right. Hi, sorry. Uh, okay, wait, okay, that's better. <laughs> okay, forgive me, yeah, I could stand up. I could do that. Okay. Um, given the shift in the title of your talk um, to Goya's Monsters, there is a kind of um, omission in your, in your slideshow of one of the most iconic monsters, in my opinion, of the Saturn devours his son, and I wondered if you could just briefly talk about how perhaps some of Goya's monsters in his paintings fit in, or whether you chose to, on purpose, to, to avoid putting this in your talk. Yeah. <laughs> the Black Beauties. Okay. Since the research was published in 1984 by the Prado Museum and the Bulletin the Museum of the Prado. We know that they have been incredibly heavily restored, and a lot of what we're seeing is mid-19th century. The black paintings were a series of paintings that Goya painted on the walls of a country house outside of Madrid. He painted in oil directly on plaster. They remained on the walls until, about, until, until the late 1860s, when actually a, a French banker, the Baron Delanger, bought the house and had them removed and actually exhibited them at an international exhibition, I am forgetting what year, before he ended up finding no seller for them and returning them to the, the Prada Museum. But of course he had to remove process, so the paintings were removed, transferred to canvas, and at some point they were um, restored, uh, whether before they were at the exhibition, certainly once they came to the Prado, we, we know the name of the restorer who took great liberties chopped off you know, a foot, uh, a, a meter of one of the canvases, changing the focus of it entirely. But I guess you know, I can share this much. A year ago, um, I was in the Prado, and um, there is a firm, I think it's run by 
British people, but it's based in Madrid. It creates uh, digital reproductions of Egyptian tombs. I, re I had read about it, I think, in the New York Times just then before. And they, what they did is they created this program that shows the painting as we see it now. Click on the screen, you get the the, the infrared. You see, you get the um, you get the X-ray. You get the 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 photographs that were taken before they were removed from the wall. You get all these different variations. And what happens is when you look at the infrared and look at the lowest levels, there's nothing there. I mean, there there seems. I mean, the curator, I was looking at this with Manuel Lomeno, who's the curator of the Goya at the Prado, and with our, the, her associate curator, Gudrun Maher. And we just did not know what we were looking at. You know, when you look at Saturn, you see the eyes, and at the lowest level, you see the eyes, and you see nothing else. So what did Goya paint? And I'm hoping that, you know, we, we spoke, and, and Manuela said that they were going to make this public and viewable in the way, which will be great. Um, but at this point, it hasn't, that hasn't happened. But those images only increase the questions on the black paintings of how much of that is Goya. Because it's not only what the restorers might have done. It is that those people who were in the house, what they might have added. There seemed to be places where figures were actually added before they, that weren't by Goya before they were taken down by the walls. Well, where does that lead us? Um, so this is why I tend not to talk about the wonderful image of you know, the giant devouring or Saturn devouring his son. We don't know. Because we just don't know what it looked like. <laughs> So that's the short answer. <laughs> yes, can you explain his last years, Goya's last years, and, and how it was lived? Sure, okay. Uh, this, is, this is the research I did most recently, and you can't, you can't quote me because one of these days I'm gonna get around to publishing it. So Goya's last years. Um, he probably, okay, so 1820, there was a liberal coup in Spain, and the, the king was forced to, to follow the constitution. In 1823, with the help of French forces, the king was put back on the throne, and again, the liberals were forced out. And it, that is usually seen as the reason Goya left Spain. I don't think so. I don't think Goya was that politically involved. I think he served whatever master commissioned him, just, and, just, and I think he would have served uh, Ferdinand. But for, the, the return king, Ferdinand, didn't really like his style and didn't give him much to do. So he asked for permission to go to France, and supposedly to take the waters for his ailing health. Uh, and he got, he, he got signed permission from the king to take a leave of absence. And it expired in six months, see, by which time he had gone up to Paris and then settled in Bordeaux. And he applied again, and the king gave him a leave of absence. And it continued, and he continued to, um, to, to, uh, to uh, he continued to collect his salary as first court painter. He was still counting collecting a hefty sum of 50,000 reales a year. So the idea that he was a political exile just doesn't work. What made him go? Well, he had long been a friend of a writer called Leandro Fernandez de Moratin, if any of you are Spanish literary lit, lit people here, who had gone into exile, who had had to go into political exile, and who ended up in Bordeaux. And he wrote back to a friend in, in um, 
Madrid, who I've discovered was also a friend of Goya's, that oh, Bordeaux is great, you can live without a whole lot of money, it's, it's, it's good, it's a lovely city. And maybe Goya got word that, okay, I'll go there. Because, uh, and the, the other thing that happened is Goya's in-laws, to whom he was really quite attached, had gone to Paris in 1823. I don't think it was political. They were very wealthy merchants, and I thought that perhaps they were just trying to save their wealth by getting out of what would happen when the king came back and all the political turmoil in Spain. So he had family, he had um, you know, a friend in Bordeaux, and also, um, Goya arrives in Bordeaux in late June 1824. He then takes a, three, a trip to Paris where he meets his in-laws and together they come back to, to Bordeaux in September where he would spend his final years, making two trips back to Madrid in 1826 and 27. Um, but soon there's a woman called Leocadio Weiss who crosses this French border supposedly to see her husband. Six days later, Moratin reports to the friend of Madrid that the, the senora is here living with Goya and they are well installed in the house and she came with her two children. Her husband, Isidoro Weiss, was a bankrupt jeweler who lived in Madrid and died in poverty in 1850. So um, there are many re personal reasons that might have taken Goya to, uh, to Bordeaux. As you probably know it, Goya remained incredibly active. The uh, art of lithography was far more advanced in France than it was in, in, in Spain at the time. And he began to work with a, a lithographer called Golon. He did a, a lithographic portrait of this man. And it was he who produced the Bulls of Bordeaux. He continued to draw in, in sort of a waxy crayon, you know, again, broadening himself. Was his eyesight increasingly impaired? Was that why he was working with a kind of crayon? It's, it, it was once identified as lithographic crayon. Today we describe these drawings as, as just crayon, perhaps. But then he created on, on little pieces of ivory that are either measured two by two or three by three, these wonderful miniatures. And he writes to a patron in Paris, another Spaniard, exile, who writes him and wants to publish the Caprichos. And he said, no, can't do it. You know, the, the, the plates are in the Spanish, they can't, can't publish. Besides, I've just done this new thing, 50 miniatures on ivory and this new technique I've developed, which was apparently to cover the, the ivory surface with carbon black, drop water on it till it created some image, and then lift figures out of that. And, and you've probably seen these reproduced in places. So again, there was this, this just invention to the end, looking for patrons. He wanted the Paris patron to, to be interested in, in these, these miniatures, um, but he wasn't. Um, and he, you know, he stayed. He went back to try and settle things at home, settle his family in, in the summer of 1826, 1827. He died in the spring of 1828. Leocadio was at his side. And recent, well, in, in 2008, actually, a Spanish scholar produced a letter from Moratin to Leocadia after Goya's death that said, Moratin, I mean, Leocadia had written to him how Goya's son had come up from Madrid, taken the silver, taken the pistols, taken the, and, and left her with the apartment paid till the end of the month, and gave her a thousand franc note and said, goodbye and good luck. And then, so Moratin writes, and that is why I wanted you to write that paper and have him sign that we would have had notarized as Moratin was trying to protect Leocadia. There's also another letter that, of 1827 where Goya is writing from Madrid to Leocadia saying, my dearest friend, mi más querida amiga, and talks about Leocadia's daughter and things. So 
you know, he wasn't bereft. He was surrounded by family. He was surrounded by friends. He was creative until, you know, within two months of his death. I mean, he, it, was, it was not all that bad way to go. <laughs> Other questions? Thank you very much. You've been great. Thanks. Oh.